let's pray together before we, before we read the scriptures. Our great God, we thank you. We thank you for this time to gather both morning and evening to worship you. We begin and we close out the day, Lord, because all glory belongs to you alone, no one else. We pray for the word today that it will be preached, Lord, and that you will be magnified and that you will be glorified above all else that we may continue in a heart of worship in spirit and truth by listening to the word of God as it is preached. Lord, we pray that you would illuminate the words to our eyes and to our hearts. May your spirit convict us this evening. May you turn us towards you above all else. May our eyes be set forth on the gaze of Christ alone. Lord, we want to lift this time up to you to thank you. We praise you for your word. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open up to James chapter 5, verse 13 to 20. If you're using the Pew Bibles, they will be on page 1013. 1013. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. If you've, if you've gotten to know me, have talked to me, one thing you would know is that I didn't grow up in the Reformed or Presbyterian church. Um, and I remember as my wife and I were making this transition, we were getting ready to be part of our first Presbyterian church about five years ago. And I was getting ready to go to this great Reformed seminary, Westminster Theological Seminary. My excitement was on this, that I thought the greatest impression or the greatest impact upon my life would be that I'm going to get to talk about theology all day, that I would just talk about Calvin, and I would just talk about Boving and all these great theologians of the faith. But I was wrong. After about a year or two, I talked to Jew, and I was telling her, the greatest impact and the thing that has made the biggest impression upon my heart from this Presbyterian church and from this Reformed seminary was not the theology, though that was important in my life and my, and my training and who I am today too. But it was the prayer life of Pastor Ben and the pastors and the elders at Proclamation. And it was the prayer life of my professors. And it was the prayer lecture that I heard from my professors. And there's one thing that I won't ever forget that has impressed me the most is it's been on prayer. These were men and institutions and churches 
that believed in prayer, that believed in the power of prayer for all situations, that believed that even if we have everything and yet we don't pray, we are beginning to depend upon ourselves. We are beginning to look to ourselves that prayer was the engine. Prayer was the power for everything. You can have strategies and you can have plans. You can have vision and you can have all these different things. And yet if it's not governed and it's not done by prayer, there's no power behind it. And James, as he closes out his letters to the churches, he places this huge emphasis on prayer. James calls for the church to be a praying church in all circumstances. In all circumstances, James is calling the church to be a praying church, to pray for everything in life. And so I have five points for us today. The first is in suffering and cheerfulness. Prayer is necessary for steadfastness. The second is elders pray the prayer of faith. Third, we must confess and pray for one another. Fourth, your prayers are effective. And the last point, we must prayerfully intervene. In suffering and in cheerfulness, prayer is necessary for steadfastness. James opens up with two questions. He asks first, is anyone suffering? And then he asks, is anyone cheerful? And in each of these, James gives two commands. He says, pray and sing praises to the Lord. I enjoy how the NASB translates this. The NASB translates this with the must pray and must sing. There is this command that comes from it which uh, governs the, the, the understanding of the word that there is this mustness to what we are to do in these situations. In the suffering that James speaks of here, James is using a word that speaks of a broader category of suffering. It has in mind, of course, persecution and injustice, but it's also much more than just that too. It's speaking of the suffering of the everyday life for the Christians. Maybe some of you guys have, re, have received news of cancer. Some of you guys have been dealing with mental health issues. Maybe some of you guys have been dealing with a marriage that has been on the rocks and it's been a struggle in your marriage. Maybe it's financial issues in life. This suffering is broader than just martyrdom that James is speaking of here. It covers a wide swath of issues in life. And so James says to them, why? Well, he says, pray in all these sufferings. Go to the Lord. It's truly the best thing that you can do in suffering. It's not the best options out of all options. It's the only option because it is truly the best option. It's what we must do. Because it's in suffering that we turn to the Lord. It's in suffering that we depend upon one who is greater than us. And James does not promise here that your suffering will just disappear. Or that you won't have these struggles anymore. That there's been heartbreak that that will just somehow dissolve and disappear. Or that your financial issues will just be taken care of overnight. That is not the promise that James gives. Because we're reminded in James 1, he tells us that you will face trials of various kinds. And it is to test your faith and your faith uh, and, and that it would produce steadfastness. James also reminds us in the earlier sections here in chapter 5 as he encourages the church in the midst of suffering 
to them. He calls them to patience. He calls them to trust in the Lord. And he calls them to look at the steadfastness of the prophets. And so as James is calling the church to persevere, and as he is calling the church to remain steadfast, he's calling them to do that in the midst of suffering the trials of life. And so as James is standing here and as he addresses the church, and he's saying, go to the Lord in suffering. And so, uh, and so pray. He's saying this, is that not that it will take everything away, not that it will resolve everything in your life, though he can do that. But he's saying this to them, though. He's saying, it's so that you will remain steadfast, so that you will continue the walk of faith, so that you will continue towards me. It is to continue towards the Lord that is James concerned here. Because it is oftentimes in the midst of suffering that many have wandered away. Many have wandered away from the Lord. Many have lost trust in the goodness of their Lord. Many have began to doubt their God's goodness. James is calling sufferers of all stripes to turn their eyes upon Jesus to keep their focus upon him, to ask him to strengthen them through life's trials and pains. James is concerned for the spiritual life of those who are suffering. James is saying, come to your God. Be focused upon him. He will give you rest. He will give you peace in the midst of suffering. Doesn't mean all your answers will be, doesn't mean that everything will be answered for you, that he'll provide everything for you to be answered and that you'll uh, have this sort of everything disappears. But he is saying this, though, that there is peace in the Lord. But James doesn't just talk about suffering. He also reminds us that there's times of cheerfulness, too. Cheerfulness of the saints, another broad category, again, revealing that it is in all situations. And it speaks of seasons of life when things seem to be going well, but also can include the victories of the everyday life, and the proper response to this, James says, is sing praises to God. Oh, guys, each day is a blessing from the Lord. How much more should each day should we be singing praises to our Lord, honoring Him? And although he says to sing these songs of praise to the Lord, and though it's not prayer in the sense that we normally think of prayer, of bowing our heads down, there is, I think it's proper to say that there is this offering up of words to the Lord, set to melody and music and a tune that is proper. Just as there is the danger of wandering when one suffers, there is also the danger of wandering in good times too. This walking away from this Lord. This is a danger of allowing the gift to possess us and idolatry the heart to form around the gift and not the giver. We forget the giver of good gifts. Going up to the Lord and song is focused upon the Lord. It is to remind us that he is a good giver of all things, which James reminds us in James 1.17. James' concern is for the spiritual vitality of the saints. And in both of these situations, in times of suffering and in times of cheerfulness, James' concern is this, is saying, go to the Lord. Do not lose focus upon the Lord. Do not be one who will wander, whether in times of suffering or whether in times of cheerfulness. And he's saying the way that happens is if we continually turn our eyes upon the Lord through prayer and through songs, daily and regularly. Go to the Lord in all situations. Go to Him who is a good God. There's this focus upon Him alone. It is in 
Christ, it is in our Lord alone that we go to in the midst of all situations. But James also asks this third question in my second point of elders pray the prayer of faith in verse 14 to 15. James, in his third question, he's much more specific. He speaks of sickness this time. He has a mind more than just a sniffle or a sneeze here, but a debilitating illness, a sickness that may leave some bedridden, an illness that would prevent someone from gathering with the body of believers. This is why there's this call upon them to come to him, to come to them. But there's a difference this time around as well, too. The sixth person's command is to call the elders to come to them. And then the elders are the one commanded to anoint and to pray over this person. I think it's important to note that James here does not say call forth the apostles to come. Nor does James also say call forth those with the gift of healing. He sees it as a task of the elders and as such, the early church would have recognized the role and importance of the office of eldership here. That this is their task, this is their duty to come and pray for those who are sick and debilitating. That there is a special role in which they have been ordained for. This is why we must never think of our elders as merely a board, a business board. Instead, we need to see that these are spiritual shepherds. Elders need to see that their task is primarily spiritual leadership. They need to see that their mission is spiritual for them. And as such, it is their task in the midst of this. And when there's debilitating illness, that is their task to be called out to go and pray. They are the ones who are being called here. And so when we choose elders and when we look at elders and when we look at these men, we must look to their spiritual leadership. How are they? This is why James, this is why in scriptures, Paul is calling what men, or what men who can care for their family spiritually, men who have spiritual qualifications. So in that same way, James understood this is a role for the elders to play. This is their, 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 what they've been set apart for. And although pr- prayer is a primary focus here, we have to deal with the anointing with oil. We have to talk about that. Um, just even quickly here. Because at times we must ask ourselves, what is it? What does he mean by anoint with oil? What does that oil do? Is there power in that oil? And we could ask, is it medicinal? Because oil was used in medicine in the ancient world. Um, and and, and that, that, that are the elders called them to kind of apply this medicine to those who are sick? Or is it sacramental, as the Roman Catholics would do for extreme unction, for those who are dying to help remove sins and to strengthen the souls of those who are dying? I don't think it's neither of those. I don't think it's medicinal because the role of the elder is being called is a spiritual role. And yet, I don't think it's extreme unction because James is saying, hey, they'll be healed. They'll rise up. But the oil is symbolic. When the sick is anointed with the oil, it's for the purpose of setting this person apart for the Lord. It's the purpose of setting this person apart for prayer. And when applied, it is to be applied in the name of the Lord to help stimulate faith in this person, that is to be for the purpose of turning their eyes back to the Lord himself. 
not upon them. And we even see this, that the focus is not on the oil, because James makes a case that uh, James focuses instead on the efficacy of the prayer. His concern is not the oil itself and the power of the oil, but he focuses on the efficacy of the prayer. Because, in, because very soon right after, he speaks about the prayer of faith as that which will save the one who is sick and that the Lord would raise them up. If we read the text, we may be asking ourselves, is James saying that if elders just have enough faith and this person will be healed? And so when healing doesn't happen, do we blame elders for not occurring? I don't think so. There have been abuses of this text, of course, when James talks about the prayer of faith. There are those who say that we can demand healing for anyone who has enough faith, or if the elders would have enough faith, we can demand and expect healing and request it, placing a focus upon the quantity of faith that one has and the quantity of faith in the sick person as well. That is a danger that we have to deal with here. Yet there's also the opposite danger, I think, that I think many of us probably would lean if we were to have two extremes here of being doubtful, of not praying with confidence that the Lord would heal. This may be due to seeing that the only healing comes from modern medicine. And just to make the case here, James is not against that at all here. That's just not his focus. And this is probably where we would probably land more than the demanding here. We probably would land more in saying, well, God really healed this person with debilitating illness. And so as we pray for healing, or when we hear the elders praying for miraculous healings, do we truly believe it? Do we believe that it will happen? Or has it become more of what we're just supposed to say? It's done, out of, it's done not out of faith, but done out of obligation, done out of to provide some therapeutic uh, uh, rest for the mind. So what is it then? If it's not either of those, in James 1, 5-8, James calls for the church to ask in faith without doubting. And yet in James 4, 15, he reminds us to ask according to his will at the same time. This is the twin truth on the prayer of faith. We ask in faith without doubt, and we, never, can, we can never come to this prayer of faith with arrogance and saying we can demand healing. The two extremes have forgotten that this prayer of faith has an object of our faith. It's our Lord. It's a reminder to both sides that our Lord is the healer, not the quantity of your faith. And also at the other side, one side has forgotten that, that our God is the one who heals, and so he still heals today. He is the sovereign Lord over all the earth, and yet he can still heal Guys, you cannot approach those who are hurting and in sickness and pain with doubts of God's healing. And yet at the same time, we cannot be arrogant in our, in our requests. And so elders, when you pray the prayer of faith, it's the reality that you need and you can pray expectantly, trustingly, and believing that the Lord has given us such promises. And so we pray with such convictions that he is the healer. And yet, at the same time, we do not pray arrogantly, demanding such healing from his will. Because it is a reminder for us all that it is not us who heals, it is our Lord who heals. And he still brings healing today. 
But James doesn't just end there with the elders and praying for the sick. He says just right at the end there, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. James is not saying that all sickness is connected to someone's direct sin. We all understand that we live in a fallen world. Sickness abounds. Disease abounds. But James does leave room for us to show that it is a possibility with some, that their sickness is connected to their sins. We are reminded that the Lord chastises his children, but always for the sake that they would turn back to him. And I have made this grave, mis- grave mistake when I pastored in my previous denomination. I remember hearing a lot of the older folks as they were on their hospital beds or they were on their beds at home, and we would go and pray for them as elders and pastors. And I remember being there and just being tired of saying, why do they keep talking about their sins? There's nothing going on here. And I remember going to one of my hospital visitations and stepping into the hospital room with the family, all surrounding there, the person on the bed. And I remember one of my first things I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell them in that moment that you don't need to seek forgiveness in this moment. Your sickness is not because of your sin. You guys, that may have been true. It may have been true that that sickness that they had at that moment may not have been directly uh, the reason for their, for their sickness. But here's what I did wrong and why that was wrong. I turned down spiritual healing. I turned down one who had conviction from the Spirit of God of the sins of their lives. Because oftentimes it is in sickness and it is in pain when one is sitting on their beds that even if it's not connected directly to the sickness that they have, they often sit and think and ruminate about their lives and the sins that they have caused and the sins that they have done. And the Spirit is pricking their hearts and the Spirit is convicting their hearts to seek confession to seek to ask for forgiveness to the Lord, and it is an opportunity for us to minister to them, not just physically, but spiritually as well, too. I went against the work of the Spirit because I was afraid of being too, what I consider at that time, charismatic. It's a practical reality that as elders, you need to be mindful of not just the physical healing of a person, but also the spiritual healing that is so necessary for them. James is as concerned with the spiritual life of the sick individual as he is with the physical states of these individuals. He wants healing for them, but he wants spiritual healing for them as well, too. This leads us to our next point, that we must confess and pray for one another. As James is now ending that section, but yet he's talking, he has just finished talking about forgiveness and confession. James takes this therefore and infers to the next section. In the previous passage, as he addresses the congregation, how they are to deal with sin. James is telling believers in the church that they cannot allow sin to go unchecked and to not even allow the possibility of physical and spiritual sickness to arise. Instead, they should confess their sins, pray for one another, so that they may be healed. 
Notice that James has moved us from the individual of praying for yourself in the midst of suffering and in the midst of cheerfulness, and then he's gone to the elders and the role of elders and praying for the sick, and now he moves us to the corporate picture of the church in their confession and prayer life. James calls the church to be a confessing church, a church that confesses to one another, that our confession should not only be private, but there is a place where we should have those around us brothers and sisters in Christ, who we can confess our sins, who we can confess our struggles to, and these brothers and sisters can pray over us, minister to us, and help us. Oftentimes, this is hard and it's tough because it's uncomfortable to go to someone and say, here's my struggles, here's my sins, here's ways in which I have failed and where I've sinned against the Lord. It can be embarrassing. Oftentimes, it's easier to ask for prayers for our needs than to confess. But guys, we must not neglect one of the great privilege of being part of the church and the ability to gather and fellowship with one another. It's a reminder that the Christian walk is not a walk alone, but it's a walk with others. It's a corporate reality, not an individual reality to be lived out. And it needs to be done within the church body. We are neglecting an important aspect of fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ when we neglect our confession to one another and we neglect that time for them to minister to us in prayer. Again, we see here what James is bringing out here is that we need to have a concern and care for the souls of our brothers and sisters. Are we willing to listen? Are we willing to create an environment to listen to their struggles, to listen to their confessions, to listen to the ways in which they've sinned against the Lord? And are we willing to pray on their behalf as well too? And yet we as well too, are we willing to go to others and not neglect this fellowship opportunity that we have in which we can share with one another our sins and what has happened? Because oftentimes I believe that if we make it all about private confession, we make it all about just ourselves and to the Lord at times, we miss out on the ability of others to be a ministering spirit, to be a ministering person to us, to be a ministering person, one to invest in our lives, one to pray for us. And oftentimes, when there are sins in our lives in which we love these sins, we don't have brothers to challenge us and sisters to challenge us. And oftentimes, what that happens, what it can lead to is people wandering from the truth, wandering from the Lord. There is this one another here that James speaks about. Are we willing to go and put ourselves out to others in the church? Do we see this body of believers here as our truly brothers and sisters in Christ? That we are willing to share our deepest sins to them and ask for them to be praying for us. And James leads us to this next point, that your prayers are effective. James tells us at the end of verse 16 that the prayer of the righteous has great power as it is working. Daniel Doriani reminds us and he tells us that the prayer of the righteous have power, yet God gives us that righteousness by faith and by the Holy Spirit. We have been made righteous by our Lord and as such the prayer of God's people are powerful and effective, that our prayers make an actual difference. Our prayers make an actual difference. I, I think this is why right after that, James goes right into Elijah the prophet. He mentions a specific point in Elijah's ministry as a prophet. 
He mentions that Elijah prayed for the rain to stop. It stopped. And then he prayed uh, for the rain to begin. And three and a half years later, that is when the rain began. One would think that as we look to Elijah, he was a pretty special guy. Contextually, Elijah is a big figure. His miracles were spectacular. He denounced sin courageously. His departure from this world is quite unique. And he even challenged the false god Baal itself. But what James focuses on, what James celebrates, is not the miracles, it's not the large things that Elijah did, but James says he's an ordinary guy with a nature just like ours. It's in his ordinariness that he prayed the prayer of faith, the prayer of a righteous one, and things happen. Elijah speaks to the whole of this passage, and he sets before the church an example of the power of prayer, of the power of the ordinary man in his prayer. Whether it's you praying in the midst of your sufferings, or whether it's you praying in the midst of cheerfulness, or if it's the elders praying for the sick, or it is praying for those who have confessed, James is saying that it is effective. They are effective prayers. The truth is that sometimes we don't believe that our prayers are effective. We don't believe our prayers make a difference. Sometimes we think that we're just offering up words to the wind and there's nothing that is going to happen. But James here is saying, no, 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 look at Elijah, an ordinary man, nothing special about this guy. And he prayed and it stopped raining and he prayed and it started raining again. Because again, guys, prayer is not about us. We don't do anything here. Elijah sets before us that it is about the Lord. That's why we go to him in everything. He is the one that does everything. We go to him in faith. That is it. Elijah's prayer were not extraordinary. He was ordinary. It is your ordinary prayers that are effective. There's no special chance you need to make. There's no special thing you need to do. It is you in faith, you who are righteous in Christ's blood, you who pray and your prayers are effective because it's about the Lord. It's about Him alone. It's a focus upon the Lord in the midst of prayer. And for some of us, we need this reminder that Elijah is ordinary. We are ordinary. And so as such, pray. Guys, the truth is that some of you may not be gifted to teach. Some of you may acknowledge that you can't play an instrument and you probably shouldn't be up here singing. Some of you may say, I'm not great in evangelism. I don't have certain gifts and talents to do certain tasks for the church. And you may be wondering, well, where can I serve this congregation then? I have no place to serve. But I need to tell you this, that one of the great tasks One of the great needs of the church today more than ever is we need prayer warriors. We need ordinary men and women praying day and night for this church. Men and women praying for the the denomination. Men and women praying for those who are hurting and those who are sick because it is the ordinary men and women's prayer that are effective. You have a place to serve as prayer warriors. It is we need men and women to be praying for this church because they need to be praying. They are the engine. They are the power for this church, for everything that happens here. 
you have a place in this congregation to serve in one of the greatest places that anyone and everyone should and could serve is in prayer. As James ends there, he brings us to our last point that we must prayerfully intervene. Verse 19 and 20 calls us to intervene to those who are wandering. I do believe that James is beginning to close out the book here in these last two verses. And the reason I say that is that he recalls this, my brothers, and it serves as a book and how he even began this book. But even though this is James starting this closing section, I still believe it's connected and does not depart from what has been the main thread in this text on prayer and even on Elijah and the focus on Elijah. Because as we look to Elijah, we can ask, what was the point of Elijah's prayer for that drought? It was God's chastisement upon the nation of Israel for their double-mindedness. They wanted Baal and they wanted God. They were people that wavered. And the goal of Elijah's prayer was to bring back a double-minded people to their God, to confess their sins, to confess their wrongs, and to bring them back to rightful worship, to restore them. That is what stood behind Elijah's prayer, and what stood behind this drought was restoration of the nation. Elijah stands here to remind us the, the power of prayer to bring back double-minded sinners to God. And it is here in James that we have his final call for the saints of God's church to not slander those who are wandering from the faith, but to chase after them, to restore them. That's why he says, my brothers, go out to them. To those who are wandering, to those who are walking away. Because we have to see this, that oftentimes we can look to those who are wandering and say, well, they need to figure it out. They just need to figure it out and they just need to do it. And they just need to come back. But James here is saying, it's not just a they problem, it's a you problem. It's a church problem to those who are wandering, to those who are walking away, to those who are seemingly having a foot out the door. Not a they, it's a you too. It's your problem, it's your issue, and you should be concerned for your brother's hearts, for your sister's hearts, who have began to wander. These, again, are brothers and sisters in Christ part of this covenant membership, part of this covenant family. And for us to say that they just need to figure out is to show an unlove for them. And in a sense, one of the worst things we can do, that James warns us about, is slandering those within the body. And yet James says, no, go to your brothers. Go to your sisters. Chase after them. Because again, this mention of those who are wandering it's not a mention of those who have committed apostasy yet. He's mentioning those who have begun to drift away from the Lord. These are people who are still connected to the body, but are beginning to take a step outside the doors. They are beginning to be double-minded, and oftentimes this looks like retreat from regular gathering of the fellowship of believers. Maybe it's moving away from, from their regular gathering with a, a growth group or whatever it is. It could be that, that there's priorities in their lives that seem to contradict their Christian worldview. There may be that they are beginning to compromise on theological concerns, on biblical understandings, whatever it may be. They are wandering and slowly walking away from the truth of our Lord. James is saying, you need to go after them. 
And I love what Sam Albury says here. He says, we need to be humble. It is only by God's grace that we are not in that situation ourselves. And we may have well been so on other occasions. There is a need for gentleness and self-examination. It needs to be done carefully, prayerfully, and lovingly. But it does need to be done. And the wonder of the gospel is that it can be done. It may risk the friendship, even if done with love. It may cause offense, even if done with care. But it is worth doing. You may end up saving a life for the death of Jesus. The Lord Jesus of the glory can and does cover over a multitude of sins. You know that because you know it covers yours. If you call someone back from wandering away from the cross and towards hell, you're literally saving their eternal life. There's always a way back because the cross, because at the cross, there's always hope for the double-minded. We go to our brothers. We know that we are part of this covenant family. There will be some who will wander, some who will begin to drift away. What will you do with those? Will you show brotherly love and Christian love to your members of the church and bring them back to share the truth? What they need now more than ever is not slander. It's not they'll figure it out. But what they need now more than ever is to be turned to the Lord, to see the glorious grace of our God who is willing to forgive, who is willing to bring them back, that on the cross, he died for his people. Don't close them out. Because at the cross, there is always hope for the double-minded. And as we close out this sermon, we see that James here focuses on prayer in all situations. Because our prayer, again, brings the people of God back and focused upon the Lord. It is to our Lord alone that we go to. Oftentimes, when there is a lack of prayer in all situations in our lives, it is revelatory of one's spiritual life. And there may be some of you today whose prayer life is lacking. Maybe it doesn't exist at all. And the answer to that is not me calling you. Again, I want to make sure that's not me, you understanding me saying, oh, I just need to go pray more. I just need to go do more. But I think first you need to ask yourself, why am I not going to the Lord in all situations? Because I don't trust him in all situations. Is it because I trust myself more? Is it because I don't believe prayer actually works? Is it because prayer is not a priority in my life? Or maybe it could be why am I not willing to confess and have others pray for me is also the reality that I like my sins that I am delving into and I don't want to bring that up before the Lord. Search deep within yourself and ask yourself, why are you neglecting one of the great gifts that we have in approaching our Lord? Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for this time to gather, for this time to hear your word, Lord, and the centrality of prayer in our lives. Lord, remind us, Lord, of the goodness of prayer, Lord, 
Lord, if there is a lack of prayer in our lives, Lord, convict us for the reasons why we are not praying, Lord, and build within us holy habits, Lord, in which we find joy in prayer, in which we believe and trust, Lord, that you answer prayers, Lord. Lord, I want to pray for those within the body who have wandered and are wandering and are beginning to wander. Lord, may you convict their hearts tonight, Lord. And may you have them find brothers and sisters to, again, uh, restore them, Lord, to find brothers and sisters to pray for them, to care for them, to invest in them. Our great God, we want to just lift this time up to you to praise you and thank you for good, your goodness, your love, and your mercy upon us. Amen.